Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. Joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. It's a nice sunny day here. It's a long weekend. What more? What, what more? What more could a person want? Uh, one can want lots of things, Frank. But uh, <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a different podcast, maybe. Um, right. So earlier this week, we had the unprecedented, uh, in many ways, uh, um, event of former President Trump uh, being arrested and, and being uh, indicted on a series of was more than 30 charges. Uh, he was arraigned. He arraigned. was already indicted. Sorry. Right. Yes, he was arraigned for, for more than 30 charges uh, in uh, in New York City, uh, which was a sort of media circus. Uh, and, and and I guess there'll be a trial at some point in the future. At least that's the the, the uh, what's likely to happen. And so we thought we'd see if we can try to put this somewhat unprecedented event into some kind of historical context. Yes, we were told repeatedly how unprecedented it is, uh, which does make it pose a challenge for us. Since mm. The premise of this exercise is that we're going to meant to give historical context to mm. uh, events. So we'll see how we do with that. Before we start, though, David, can I, uh, I want to thank a listener, Joe from London, who got in touch about last week's episode. Oh. To say that he really enjoyed the baseball episode and the fact that one of our British, British listeners, listeners did enjoy the great. baseball. Uh, <laughs> and for those people who turned off, this one will have no baseball in this episode, we promise. So, um, but thank Joe, thank you for listening. Yes, yeah, thank he's you, one of our more loyal listeners anyway, and thank you for getting in touch about that. So, yes, before we t- turn to Trump, did you watch the arraignment? I, I watched parts of it, but I mean, obviously, we didn't get to see inside the courtroom, which was which was which was sad. I was looking forward to, to seeing all of the you know grimy details but i watched a bit of it what did you think of watching it it was really really boring uh in the sense that i i was waiting for in part i turned on too early oh so i spent a lot of time uh watching the the video of that door not opening Mm. in the the courthouse corridor while uh talking heads on various networks both british and american bloviated and had to fill time and i had some sympathy for them because they had nothing really to say Mm. Uh, and they kept re-showing the same video all the, of, the, of the kind of drone shot of him getting out of the car oh, yeah. outside the building. Um, but it was fairly anticlimactic, except for the shot of him actually, the perp walk, mm. as they call it, walking through the doors to go into the courtroom. I think much was made about the fact that the court officer, the security guy, the, the, or the court policeman didn't hold the door open for mm. him. As I don't even know how deliberate that was. I mean, it was kind of amusing, but it was a little bit anticlimactic, I have to say, as 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 a big moment. I think they were right not to actually televise mm. the the arraignment itself, and you know, we saw photographs. I don't, I think that's all we needed to see, probably. To, to courtrooms, I think, are usually much more boring than courtroom dramas. Yes, to yeah, absolutely, and people are much less articulate. Yes. Um, you know, if you wanted to watch a legal drama last week, there was the Gwyneth Paltrow the skiing <laughs> trial, um, which was which, kind of boring. Well, it was was weirdly compelling, but also boring. I mean, court—it's very procedural yes. in court. Yeah, it's, to be sure. Although I think you know, we were all spoiled by the O.J. Simpson trial thirty years ago. That's right. Which which was compelling in a bizarre way. Anyway. It was compelling, but but this yeah this was not so so I, I did watch it. Although I have to confess. I switched over and started watching Picard. Uh, that's a much <laughs> much better choice on all number of levels, right? So, so is this? You know, they they're often saying this is unprecedented. To what extent do you think this is unprecedented, and if so, what do we do with that? It's unprecedented in the sense that no former president has been indicted, arrested, and arraigned for 
a series of felonies. Uh, if you want to be specific, a series of felonies arising from his effort to get elected and uh, to cover up his relationships. I mean, this was one thing we mm. learned. It wasn't just Stormy Daniels, but also um, the Playboy model, Catherine McDougal, is that her name? Um, I don't, I don't. Linda McDougal. Anyway, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, well, sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but there were there were other charges. Uh, the doorman, uh, the, the incident with the doorman in New York who claimed that... Uh, uh, the then candidate Trump had 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 a child out of wedlock, and so the the charges all arise from Trump's efforts to pay money via Michael Cohen, his his lawyer and fixer, uh, now enemy, uh, to hush up these various um, infidelities. Or stories about these infidelities, and we've never had that. Mm. But uh, well, but, it, but, but more broadly, yeah. we've never had we've never had a former president. In court, facing felony charges. So that that in a strict sense, sorry, I interrupt you, but yeah. in a strict sense, this is unprecedented. Yes. What, it, now that being said, we haven't had that many former presidents. True. And former presidents, you know, if, if most of them fade quietly into the woodwork, if they you know have a former presidency at all, they very rarely get involved in politics. That you know, he's not only a former president, but he's a candidate for president. Um. You know, and obviously most presidents don't engage in the kinds of behavior that Trump has engaged in his whole life. I think that's a... At least to our knowledge. At least to our knowledge. Um, yes, that is at least to our knowledge. <laughs> at least to our knowledge. But, um, you know, the, the, there are relatively other few other people who would fall into this category. You know, I was I was here listening to an uh, interview with, with, with uh, one of the, the prosecutors in the, the Iran-Contra scandal. And one of the things he said, he said was they were thinking about indicting former President Reagan for his involvement in that. But they decided not to because he was really old and was not publicly engaged in anything at that point. And they decided even if they could make an indictment, it wasn't worth it either for the you know their time or for the country. And was likely already suffering from dementia. Good, Whether he think, would yes. have been fit to stand trial, trial would have right, been... Right. So, so, so you know, the, the, the idea of, of an indicting a former president is an idea that has come up before. Um, you know, if I think if we look beyond the presidency, we obviously have a whole host of people who have been... Yeah, but before yeah. we get there, though, because the other two that will come to mind to people mm. and that were mentioned in the yeah. past week, of course, are Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, both of whom avoided being charged... Mm. Uh, Nixon because he was pardoned by his successor Gerald Ford and to some extent Nixon is the perhaps the presidential analog mm. I think um, and Bill Clinton who committed perjury mm. I mean <laughs> and admitted as much and indeed was sanctioned because he was disbarred mm. but there were no charges um, filed against him beyond you know, so, so he did suffer consequences but he was not charged uh, the the Nixon analogy, which I think we may return to, is perhaps best. The interesting thing about Nixon, however, by comparison with Trump, or the, or the Nixon-Trump comparison, is not just that Nixon was pardoned by President Ford, but Nixon more or less accepted, despite being pardoned, that he would not be an active political player. I mean, he he was active politically in the sense that he re tried to recreate himself. Yeah, he became a senior statesman yeah, kind of thing. And he wrote an some and, and wrote, but, but, but he wasn't actively involved in electoral politics. Right. Even though he lived a fair, a good long time yeah. after his yes, presidency. But he, 
I think implicit in the deal around his pardon, I don't know, I don't mm. think this was explicit, was, okay, you need to go away. And I think the Republican Party told him to kind of go yeah. away. And yeah, he more like, or less did so. I mean, he did want to become an, you know, an eminent statesman, as it were, mm. uh, but, and, uh, and a bit of a kind of wise man, kind of commenting on global affairs, etc. Mm. But he kind of accepted the deal. He got the pardon and he went away and the party kept him at arm's length. President Trump, a former now former President Trump, is not just a candidate for president, but he's an active. You know, he's he's the leader of. He's not the presumptive leader. He is the leader of the Republican Party at the moment, and so this is this is a quite different situation. It is unprecedented mm. in that sense, I think, as well. Bill Clinton also has been active with the Clinton Foundation and everything else, but he's not. And obviously, he's his wife ran for president. Yes, members of his family Family's. have been involved electorally, but Bill Clinton too has taken a step. Back, yes, I think, uh, and although he's made, he obviously campaigned for his wife, and he's he's campaigned for Democrats occasionally. He hasn't been front and center as a, certainly as a candidate mm. in the way Trump has. So, so I think Trump's situation is unprecedented. The other difference with Clinton is, you know, he couched this in a variety of ways. There, there was at least some note of contrition with Clinton. Yeah. If right, like you could tell that he apologized, and whether he, you know, sincerely apologized or not, Trump has never apologized for anything in his entire life, right? Like his his response to any accusation is to go out fighting. Which okay, I, I would like, agree with that. I'm not sure I agree with your premise that there was contrition on Bill. I don't know what's in Bill Clinton's heart. Well, no, I know that Bill Clinton is a very, very convincing speaker mm. one might even say actor. So I think Bill Clinton can perform contrition very persuasively. We should talk about Bill Clinton sometime. Mm, yes. I think Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton is a deeply problematic character. Oh, to be sure. <laughs> yes, but he knew. Right. But Bill Clinton too. I mean, uh, sorry, I, I won't disagree with the premise of your. I, I slightly disagree with your premise, but I, I think you're right. Clinton, like Nixon, to take the to develop yeah. the theme, knew that he had to perform in a certain way, and has accepted like within the norms. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you know we know about Trump is norms mean nothing to him. And this is yet another case. So the behavior that necessitated that that, that resulted in the these charges in the first place, of course, was unprecedented, probably for uh, in its scale and scope. But also his response to it. You're right. Trump has never said I'm sorry. Yeah, those um, those two words have never come to out. And his uh, rambling performance at Mar-a-Lago mm. last uh, Tuesday night after he was he was arraigned. You know, again, on one hand, he was coming out fi fighting. On the other, I don't know whether you saw it. I mean, I yeah. only watched clips of it, but yeah. it was almost like a computer that whose hard disk was failing. You know, he was kind of going through the motions, mm -hmm. but he, he, he seemed Well, tired. he had a long day. He did have a long, long day. day. He did yeah. have a long day. I, that would be, I would have taken the rest of the day off. Yeah, me, yeah. <laughs> Having been around. And, 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 you know, people who say, oh, he loves this. This is great for him. I don't agree with that. I mean, I I, but that's the spit... That's the spin. I, I don't think I don't think Tuesday was a good day for, for no. For, I think he's panicked, Donald Trump. Um, but you, you know, you what, what, well, one thing I'm, I think is actually you know I don't want to predict the future, but but one area I think that that's going to be very problematic for him is he is not good about not attacking his political opponents, right? Like that is his that is sort of his default political move, and he has already attacked the judge. He's attacked the prosecutor in this case. And I think the judge gave him a very strict, you know, stern warning, like, don't do, you know, especially on social media, but also in public, you know, don't make, 
disparaging comments about the court or about you know members of the court. And I think Trump's ability to restrain himself from doing that as witnessed by his speech that night, and as we will probably see over the coming weeks, I think he, the chances of him getting in trouble with the judge are probably not insignificant. That's right. And Donald Trump Jr. shared a photograph, an article with a photograph of the judge's daughter, mm-hmm. for example. And, and yeah, the, there, there's been lots of actually like threats upon the judge's life already in you know that's 48 right. hours and all. Although, although I know we need to move on. Yes. <laughs> One thing that was striking, I think, on Tuesday in terms of a dog that didn't bark aspect, mm. there were protesters. It's Manhattan, of course, there mm. were protesters, but there weren't that many. And there certainly weren't that many out to support President Trump. There were no. probably more out there to support the the uh, the indictment and the arraignment. Uh, to the extent that there were probably more reporters interviewing Trump-supporting protesters than actual Trump protesters. So they kind of... Fears that there would be another January 6th and there would mm. be violence and death, which Trump was intimating uh, over the weekend uh, or the weekend prior to his in, his, his arraignment, didn't, didn't come happen. to pass, at least not yet. Now, not if yet. there's a trial, who knows? But um, I, I thought that was interesting. I, uh, he, there was not the same level of support. And, and frankly, I, one has to be careful with, with these interviews. Um, most of the people I saw being interviewed were sort of cranks. Hmm. Um, <laughs> now I don't, I wasn't there, so I don't know whether that was. You know, so it seemed that there was a small crowd, and they were of the more eccentric variety of Trump supporters. So I'm not sure that kind of that Trump would have been disappointed that he wasn't able to muster a kind of crowd in support of him. I I think. I think that's on right. Tuesday. I I think. That was a bad day for him. Yeah, on a number of levels. Sorry, you want to talk about well, precedents well, and other so, politicians. So, so, I mean, he, he's the first president to go through this particular thing. But but if we were to sort of widen our scope a bit, prominent politicians getting arrested and going to jail actually isn't that uncommon in American history. It's also not that uncommon globally. I mean, right. actually, in terms of heads of state, state there right. are lots of precedents. Um but yes, that's right. Well, actually, I'd say let's do the global one first because I think one of the things that that you know um, Trump and his supporters have said about this is you know attacking the leaders of political parties is is something that only happens in d- d- banana republics, and that's empirically just not true, right? I think there's lots of countries the United States considers peers in terms of its you know, status on the world stage, if, if there are any, if, uh, that that do indict political leaders. It's happened in France. It's happened in, you know... Israel. 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 <laughs> yes. Um, it's happened in Brazil, right? Where, where in fact, the, the, the current leader of Brazil had previously been imprisoned. Um, you know, and so it's not something that just happens in... in "Quote unquote banana republic." No, that's so right. It happens yeah. in functioning democracies. Now, I think the use of that term, though, hmm. which, as you know, is loaded and sure. racist, um, is deliberate by Trump supporters because, in fact, that's how they see the world. Hmm. But they're also one of the things that's very curious to me about Trump and his supporters is their willingness to talk down America. Hmm. Considering they're America firsters, I mean, it's all you know. Trump said the country's going to hell. It's this is decline, and they kept using reference to banana republics hmm. as you know this is banana republic behavior. On on one hand, they were doing that to say this is exceptional and this is evidence of of America uh, of what's wrong with America. But they really went to a narrative of American decline that seems slightly at odds with their hyper nationalism. 
Yes, it does. Well, I think... Now, part of it is, of course, leftists and wokists yes, are exactly. ruining the country. Um, and, and he's he's going to be the redeemer. I, I get the I, I get it. But but I it is slightly strange how really wed they are. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was mm. one of the few um, of Trump's political uh, office-holding allies, mm. I should say, who turned up in New York. You know, was talking about how awful New York is and I was stepping over people dying from drugs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they're really, really committed to this narrative of decline. And I think the use of that language to uh, characterize what happened to Trump is, is, is part of that. But you're quite right. Globally, in other democracies that the United States would consider equivalent uh, are kind of in its neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> um, there's a lot of precedent for this. I mean, we're, we're law-breaking political figures. Oh, Italy. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, have, have, have been called before the court. So this is not without precedent. Right. And, and, and if we look at sort of offices outside the presidency in the United States, there is a huge tradition of holding people, elected officials, accountable for their actions. There have been lots of congressmen who have been arrested and put in prison. There have been many governors. In some states, it's almost a requirement that you arrest the former governor and throw him in jail. Um, <laughs> Illinois. Um, you know, there have been a few members of the cabinet who have been arrested for and imprisoned uh, for, for various things. Um, there's been a vice president, uh, you know, who pled no contest for tax evasion, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we do have lots of examples of and a former vice president, president tried for treason. treason exactly. Aaron Burr. Yeah. So, so what kind of, of precedent does does? Oh, let's go with Aaron, so Aaron Burr. So that's probably the earliest example of this, where, where the country is sort of figuring out how do you deal with the intersection of the law and and political office holding. How did how did that debate unfold? Well, the interesting thing about the so-called Burr conspiracy, which takes place between kind of. 1806-1807 and and his trial for treason in Richmond is that Burr was tried for actions he was not tried for killing Alexander Hamilton he was tried for actions that took place and that he was involved in after his vice presidency Mm -hmm. so the accusation was he, he was involved in a conspiracy to attempt to break up the United States to create a western confederacy to break up he claimed that he was going to liberate Texas from the Spanish. Um, and, and, and it's never been entirely clear what he was up to. Um, and, and so the case, the case collapsed for a number of reasons, uh, which we don't need to go into. Mm. But it's an interesting case because some of the accusations made against the Jefferson administration, and particularly Jefferson for pursuing this case, are... Do have some echoes with today, and that this was a political vendetta. You were go, you know, he Jefferson was accused, and the Jefferson administration was accused of going after Burr because they didn't like him, and and you know that this was political persecution. Um, the chief justice at the time, who presided over the trial, was John Marshall, and Marshall was no friend of Jefferson's, and Marshall was kind of sympathetic to this interpretation, and 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 it was a pretty bruising, um, you know. Burr was acquitted. Uh, it was a pretty bruising defeat for the Jefferson administration. Um, but th- what's interesting for us in, in this context, and James Lewis has written a great book about how um, how the press treated this whole thing. Um, what, what, what's interesting about it, I think, for the purposes of our discussion today, is that it was interpreted as a political 
not witch hunt, they didn't use that phrase, but at least I don't think they did. But, you know, a political attack, an attack mm. on a political rival and using the power of the state to go after a political rival, which is the claim that Trump's defenders, Trump and Trump's defenders are making. And it's interesting to me that it isn't just the usual people. It isn't just Marjorie Taylor Greene mm. and Lauren Boebert saying this. You know, Mitt Romney said it. Um, Jeb Bush said it. These are people who are not Trump supporters. No. Uh, but they feel that there's some merit to this claim that in this particular case, there's been a degree of prosecutorial overreach that's political. So, uh, so in terms of the, 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 the Burr case, the, the, I think the Burr precedent is an interesting mm. one. I think there are some echoes. Burr had been vice president. Burr had killed Alexander Hamilton, mm. but again, he wasn't tried for that um, in a duel, and, and he wasn't. He he did something mm. out west, yeah. but it's not entirely clear what. In part, the case collapsed because they just the evidence was was so confusing and and uh, murky, frankly. Well, the other case from the early republic that strikes me that that is it might be seen as a, a, a using the law to attack political enemies. Uh, has to do with the Alien Sedition Acts, you know, which resulted, among other things, uh, Matthew Lyon being um, found guilty of violating the Alien and Sedition Acts and sentenced to four months in jail. The spitting lion of Vermont. Um, and intriguingly, while he was in jail, he was re-elected to Congress, right? And and the I think that that's creating kind of interesting. Tension, I think that that's going to probably maybe unfold with the Trump case, where Trump could be potentially convicted of any number of these thirty uh, charges or other charges they might have be facing in, in other jurisdictions, and that has no constitutional bearing on whether he can get elected or not. No, there's no constitutional prohibition on electing a felon, even if he happens to be in jail, right? Like you know that that would create all kinds of. Which is interesting because, of course, we deny, we, that is the United States, um, deny felons the right to vote in a lot of states. states yeah. <laughs> but not, Including, not, I think, in Florida. Florida yes, right? but yes. not from, so he may not be able to vote for himself, <laughs> um, uh, but, but he, could, he, could, he could be elected. Yes. Um, and there are all kinds of interesting kind of quirks about this. So, so he clearly had Secret Service protection the other day. Mm. He'll need Secret Service protection during the trial. Mm -hmm. um, he won't be committed and uh, he won't go to jail while awaiting trial. Sure. Not just because he's getting special treatment, but they don't tend to jail people for white-collar crime, which is what this is, uh, in, in the state of New mm -hmm. York, uh, while they're awaiting trial. So, so he isn't getting special treatment in that way. Um, but the kind of security implications of this, this is where he is different from another politician. Right. Like a congressman or even a state governor. I mean, the the the, the protection afforded both presidential candidates and former presidents is different than for regular citizens, and and rightly so. Mm. Uh, if he were to go to jail, mm. I think that's probably unlikely. Um, yeah, how do you, it's hard to imagine how that would unfold. You know, I I don't think he's gonna have to you know carve a shiv out of his toothbrush to defend himself because he's gonna have Secret Service protection. protection. In jail. jail, right? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. How that's... I, I, uh, so that would be. A... We did say unprecedented, uh, uh, David, mm. but we've ignored the story, and I will confess I knew nothing about this, and frankly, nobody knew anything about it until a few days ago. 
the 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 charging of Ulysses Grant with speeding. Do you yes. want to talk about okay. that? Okay, so this this has been in every news story about yep. this president's or thing, and and so let me talk a bit about about President Grant getting arrested um, uh, for 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 speeding, uh, and. Um, you maybe say to yourself, how did Grant get arrested for speeding? He died in 1885. There weren't that many cars. He was speeding in a horse-drawn carriage, supposedly. President uh, Grant was a, was a, was a very uh, fond horseman. He had, had lots of thoroughbred horses. He liked to ride fast, and he liked to ride carriages fast. And the story that we have um, is that in 1872, there was a... a Street in in DC in which there uh, through a wealthy neighborhood in which the the people who lived in that neighborhood were complained to police that that people were riding their carriages down the street too fast. So a policeman was dispatched, uh, and supposedly some woman was knocked over. I think um, a, a policeman named William West, uh, who was an African American police officer, was dispatched to go and and stop the speeders on the street. He stops President Grant, says, Mr. President, you're going too fast. Slow down. Grant's like, sorry, won't do it again. And the story is the next day, West is, William West, this, this uh, policeman is out there. He stops Grant a second time, and, and, Grant, and Grant's like, okay, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to have to do my duty and arrest you uh, for, for speeding because uh, you said you weren't going to do it again. Cool, you did. Uh, Takes him to the police station, uh, according to the version of the story we have. Grant puts basically down a, a bail deposit of $20, um, which was a lot of money in 1872. Um, and when Grant didn't show up in court the next day, uh, he forfeited the $20. That's, that's basically the story. I'm not 100% sure this actually happened. Why not? Okay, the reason why I don't this think... It's breaking news, listeners. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's shown up all the time in these news coverage. And so I went back and said, well, what's the evidence that this actually happened? The earliest record I found of him getting arrested is in uh, an issue of the Washington Post from 1901. Okay, so it's well after the fact. Like, well, it's... it's almost yeah, 30, 30 years. years. Almost 30 years. At that point, Grant has been dead for 16 of them. Um, and it's an article about this policeman, William West, who, uh, you know, had, had uh, been in the USCT. He had fought at, at, at the crater, um, but was um, being disciplined uh, for um, malfeasance on the police force. And there's a line in this 1901 article that he gained notoriety soon after his appointment by arresting President U.S. Grant for horseback riding on a pavement. That's the one line that we have from 1901. Then we have a much longer version um, in 1908. And, and most people who are sort of referencing this event cite this article from the Washington Sunday Star from 1908 which is an account by West, who was then retired, about him arresting President Grant and Grant's response to it and, and, and the $20 and the whole thing. 
So that's sort of the main source we have for this arrest. We don't have any police records. We don't have any newspaper accounts that I was able to find from the 1870s. What about court records? Couldn't find it. Well, he didn't like didn't show up to court because he didn't go to court. He went to the police station. He plopped down his twenty dollars. He didn't show up for the next day. Right, but but that's police... the court then had to say where is he? And, and well, the, the only version I could find anything about that is in this story from 1908. Okay, so, well, oh, sorry. Let me play devil's advocate okay. here, though. We do have, as you know, you research this period. Yeah. The records are incomplete often. Yes, we've got testimony from somebody who was involved. So this yeah. isn't hearsay in Say the sense that okay. somebody passing it on. But, but there's something about this whole thing that, that, that strikes me as, you know, the, if you read the article from 1908, which is the, the source that everyone is citing, um, it's written in this, in this sort of um, style which suggests this is not sort of hard-hitting journalism. This is, let me tell you about the good old days in Washington kind of story. Right. And, you know, it's at a point in which grants... Uh, status within the country at that point was still, you know, he was uh, considered, you know, one of the great presidents in, in, in 1908. It was, you know, in the decades later that his reputation uh, declines somewhat in terms of that kind of uh, reputation. But, um, you know, it, it's sort of a, a loving portrait of this old policeman who is now retired um, rather than, than a serious historical, you know, or, or, or journalistic uh, uh interview is a you know do i think this guy may have stopped president yes do i think all the details that are in this story are probably right no i'm not sure I, the things that he quotes grant is saying who knows um you know if it was if it unfolded the way that it did in the article i'd be surprised that there wasn't stories from it in the 1870s there were obviously lots of journalists in in dc in the 1870s who might be paying attention to the president getting arrested. So it's plausible that West stopped the president and said, hey, slow down. Slow down. And uh, I mean, probably uh, said, the, sure. The details don't matter too much. I just think it's a fascinating that, that this is the, the example everyone's bringing up of a president getting arrested. He got stopped for speeding, right? Like it's it, of an order of a magnitude different anyway than... Uh, um, you know, uh, getting arrested or you know being charged with thirty plus felonies. I think sure. what the story is trying to demonstrate is saying, look, here is a person who is even being the highest person, you know, office holder in the country, is still beholden to the laws, and it's supposed to demonstrate some kind of civic virtue through the story of Grant saying, yes, Mister yeah, Policeman, do your duty, and etc. All that kind of stuff. It's, it's a morality tale, at least in the way it's presented in the 1908 version, um, as much as anything else. Listeners, if you want to read the full 1908 version, I'll put the link to it in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. There's a nice picture here of, of Policeman West, uh, uh, both on a horse and in his retirement. So I, I'm fascinated by West. Uh, when were the Washington police integrated? There, well, so on, in the 1870s, he was one of two black policemen. But, you know, the Grant administration believed in integration. They believed in, you know, this is a, a point in the 1870s when there is a large number of black office holders in D.C. Sure. Uh, you know, and there are lots of people who are getting appointed to federal positions and the D.C. police are under the purview of the federal government, you know, so they are, at least they were then, um, you know, they are uh, representative of that sort of uh, 
integrationist policy that the Grant administration had. Um, so it's an interesting, you know, story, but I'm not quite sure it, it's, you know, the, the parallel that people are trying to make for it you know, when they cite that in the... Uh, yeah, and in any event, scene. if he were arrested, and I'm using air quotes mm. now, it was for a misdemeanor. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a crucial difference there. One part of that story, though, which I think is interesting because it, it does speak to the current situation, is the notion that even the president is answerable to the law and has to, you know, behave. Um, and because I think we've got two competing narratives have emerged around the Trump mm. um, arrest and arraignment. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the, the first coming mainly from Democrats is, no, 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 this is a good thing. This is the rule of law being, you know, nobody's above the law. Right. is what we've heard particularly, you know, repeatedly. And this is, you know, and, and I think Alvin Bragg even said as much, uh, you know, but if he didn't, it, it's certainly the, the clear message that this, and that was the reason for, while Trump was accorded certain special treatment, you know, he was arraigned like everybody else. His fingerprints were taken. He was walked into court. He didn't, he didn't get a mugshot. Right, but that was so as, you know, not mm. to give him what he wanted, frankly. Exactly. And also he's, one of the most recognized. Yeah, we, we, know what he, we know what he looks like. I, mean, I love the idea of him. I love the notion of him trying to don a disguise yeah, to exactly. the charges. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, so, but he was basically treated to the extent it was possible, mm. given the fact he, he's a former president, like any other um, uh, person who's been indicted and arrested. And so, one narrative of this, which kind of fits mm. the Grant story, is you know nobody's above the law. And that's the message here. This is a, this is a, this is a, it's a republic of laws, and nobody's above the law, and that's what matters. The other, which is coming mainly from Trump supporters, but again, I would hasten add not only Trump supporters, mm -hmm. is this is prosecutorial overreach. This does look like a political vendetta. Mm -hmm. It does look like a political attempt to, to do to kind of Trump uses the phrase witch hunt. I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, that interpretation fits the facts. As well, both both interpretations, mm. uh, you know, it, it really depends on your perspective. Um, what do you make of these conflicting interpretations? And this is where it is different from a congressman or a governor. Mm. The, you know, the status of a former president, but particularly somebody, and why this is significant, and we talked about this before, is he's also a candidate for president. Yeah. He's not just a retired Tired president. Well, the, I mean, when, when the accusations of, of a that this is politically motivated. There are examples in American history of, of courts being used to attack political opponents. And the examples that come to mind for me um, are all from Reconstruction, um, in which uh, white Democrats in the South target Republican officeholders, usually black Republican officeholders, with um, they they use the courts to basically force them out of office, and, th and there's some really sort of egregious examples of this. Um, one is in in Texas, where there was a, a state senator named Matthew Gaines, who was a black Republican, committed to um, making black citizenship in the aftermath of the Civil War meaningful. He wanted to fight white supremacy. He wanted to fight the Klan in Texas. He wanted to create educational opportunities. The uh, Democrats charged him with bigamy. 
and had him arrested and had him thrown in jail and had him kicked out of the Texas Senate um, for bigamy. The courts eventually threw that whole charge out, but they, they had you know the political work had been done because he could no longer serve in the uh, Senate. Um, so you know the conviction gets overturned, as in many of these cases the convictions do get overturned, but the political work of using the court as a weapon to um, disenfranchise or you know, strip him of his political power and effectively disenfranchise uh, his political followers. Um, it was remarkably successful. There are a whole bunch of other examples. There's a number in South Carolina, uh, which had a very, you know, a, a state that had a black majority when uh, white Democrats take over uh, South Carolina in, in 1877, using a lot of fraud and violence to do so. One of the things they proceed to do in the following year is find ways to um, bring up many black Republicans on um, criminal charges and thereby, you know, now they've only kicked them out of office, but they've actually found ways to both put them in prison or to to uh, make them politically no longer viable. This happens to Robert Smalls, who was a black congressman from South Carolina, who they accuse of, of accepting a bribe. The evidence that he accepted a bribe was extraordinarily flimsy, uh, but they 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 kick him out of office. They, they, he's already been forced out of office, but then they... Uh, well, he eventually also gets pardoned, but his political career is over. Francis Cardozo, uh, who was the Secretary of State for South Carolina and Secretary or State Treasurer, they uh, prosecute him and send him to, to jail. And he also later is pardoned um, after he spent six months in jail. Um, you know, and I think those kinds of examples suggest there is a very dark history of the courts being used uh, to attack political opponents. But it really only happens as far as I can tell. I mean, that's the, the, those examples are all from this very tenuous period during during the end of Reconstruction. Um, and they're not nearly as prominent. The offices they're holding are not nearly as prominent as president. No, no, well, no nothing is prominent. But, right. but, you know, so there is a, a history of, of the courts being used in... in um, yeah. And interestingly, in the, in but, the past uh, week... Hmm. For a few days, um, several of Trump supporters and and uh, including some state attorneys general and and local prosecutors have said, "Well, we're going to do this now. You know, we're going to do this to Democrats. We're going to do this to Joe Biden. Or, hmm. You know, and, and uh, whether they'll have standing to do it, of course, is, is debatable. But but there there have been some uh, there's been a lot of concern expressed both the, the, the threat has been made but I, I again I've, I've read commentators not just Trump supporters mm. saying this could be a dangerous precedent so yes this is unprecedented but it could be a dangerous precedent yeah. the counter argument is look it's the rule of law that the, the, the you know, it's dangerous not doing it. yeah it's dangerous not doing it yeah let me ask you this though so there are uh, at least uh, four ongoing criminal investigations into President Trump. There's the one that he's been, he was arrested and, and arraigned for this week. Uh, basically, financial chicanery around his private life. Five or ten fluence in election. Right. Yes. Um, then there, there's the case about uh, the, there's the case in Fulton County, Georgia, around uh, seeking to influence the outcome of the the 2020 election. Yeah, so one's about the 2016 election, one's New York ones. Yeah, he's all the elections, right? 
And then there are the two federal. There's the there's the, uh, the 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 investigations undergoing under Jack Smith. One is around the, um, the improper handling of classified documents, and mm. which I think we talked about in the past. And the other is around the January sixth insurrection. The general reckoning of, of of legal analysts is of these four cases, the one that he's been arraigned for uh, is the weakest. Um, or, or, or certainly the charges are less significant yeah. um, than, than, the, than the others. Is, sorry, is that a problem? First of all, is that a problem? And by is it a problem, I mean, is it a problem politically? Because to some extent, by having the weakest case, because it was to influence an election, that's the nature mm. of the charges, what people are going to say, mm. and, and it's, you're already saying is, he's being charged for having an affair. And that's not what happened, but that's the, he paid hush money, and, and there's even a narrative out there already. He was just trying to protect Melania's feelings, right? I mean, this is what you know. The, the, yeah. That that's how this is. That's how this is going to land politically, and therefore, so let me let me. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you respond because I can tell you want to respond. Um, Alvin Bragg's decision. He made that decision. In isolation from the other cases and any and investigations, and that was his job. And so, the, but the way that I guess my question is political about the timing mm. and the way the timing plays out uh, has worked out. Will that lessen the impact if there are charges and if, there, if he's indicted relating to these other cases? You know, it, it basically, is this is the timing a problem? So go ahead. I, uh, well, I, you didn't like my assertion that this wasn't important. Well, so or I, it might not be as important. I think the other things he's charged with, or could be charged with, are much more serious. Right. That's um, one thing about having this case go forward first is I think it makes it easier for prosecutors in those other cases to bring charges. Okay. Not being the first person to, to, to yeah, it's no longer unprecedented, it, right? <laughs> um, so that will make it easier. That stage of it will make it easier for for other prosecutors to go forward with their cases in some ways because they don't have to be the first person to step out of line whether you know compared to obviously trying to rig an election in georgia and trying to to uh you know all the stuff with uh the documents and and the insurrection those are obviously extraordinarily serious the situation though in new york i think the case is actually in terms of what the jury has to deal with is relatively straightforward did he commit these kinds of financial frauds I think demonstrating that, given the evidence that they already have from Cohen and from the checks themselves and from other things, that's actually relatively straightforward. Did he do these things? Yes. Are they criminal? Yes. Like I think it would be relatively straightforward for a jury to deal with those questions if it actually gets in front of a jury. And who knows whether it actually will get in front of a jury. Um, but you know, I think these other cases could be potentially much more complicated in terms of their their legal mechanisms. So I think you're right. It's a, um, you know, the, the charges are, are less severe in terms of, of what's being accused compared to, say, trying to overthrow the government with the insurrection. But um, I think they are real charges that have, um, you know, in terms of their, their legal consequences. So uh, and I think they has a strong case in that respect, I think. The likelihood that he could convict based on the evidence. Um, yeah, I guess my question is a political one. Though. Yes. Uh, in terms of, so I guess I've got a, I've got a two part political question. Mm. 
does the fact that he was charged with the that the New York case went forward first mm. is going forward first apparently. Mm. Does that make it more? Does that lessen the political impact if there are other cases for the more serious uh, arising from the events that seem mm. to be more serious? And secondly, how do you think this? Re- how do you think this works out politically? Does this help Trump? Well, or does it hurt Trump? What so we, more generally? So, yes, yeah, so I think what we've seen in the past week and, and is that Republicans. Um, even Republicans who aren't, as you point out, Jeb Bush, who are don't like Trump very much, you know, or at all, or at all, <laughs> or even loathe him, right? Are 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 going to his side, right? And if you look at the polling over in the past week, over over who Republican voters want to have as the nominee, Trump is is has is, has been gaining as a consequence of this. On the other hand, the voter populace as a whole have been even less likely to vote for Trump as a consequence. Which means, if I were you know looking at the tea leaves, I would think that this means Trump's road to the nomination is stronger than it was, but his likelihood of actually getting elected uh, in November of twenty twenty four is is that much harder. Yeah, as I heard, I was listening to the Slate political podcast for this week um, this morning, mm. and I can't remember whether it was David Plotz or Ruth Marcus who made the comment. Basically, look, he know the GOP knows they have a problem with suburban moms. It's hard to believe a suburban mom is going to turn around and say, "Well, I wasn't going to vote for him before, but now I will." Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, the swing voter is well. I think there there are people who are just sort of sick of Trump. Uh, I think his people who who have you know bought onto the Trump train are going to. Stick with them to the end, um, so so it's hard to see. Um, you know the the political. In some ways, I can imagine that the Biden folks are, are actually, in some ways, probably pretty happy about this because they beat him last time, and it's hard to know where he could pick up voters from the last election. Yes, well, we'll say I'll say something about that in a second. I mean, one of the one of the comments that came up from a lot of right wing pundits this week and defenders of Trump and some who don't admire Trump was, hold on, Democrats. When it was Bill Clinton, you said sex was a private matter and this mm. doesn't, you know, and and now you think this matters. Um, again, I understand that the actual legal consequences are different and the the, the payment was meant to to help him get elected and mm. that, that, that's the crux of this. That argument, though, is not without merit. And on, I, in the, I, on the political realm, not necessarily. Yeah, uh, and it's a political argument. Yeah. It's a political argument, but it 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 it's it, it's when I heard that, I thought, ooh, that's a, if I were if I were a spin doctor, if I were charged with trying mm. to come up with some way to defend yeah. the, you know, to, to respond to this, I thought I was thinking, okay, if I were if if I were a voter, not paying very much attention mm. to this in terms of the details and saying, well, actually, it was mm. a violation of campaign finance law, I think. This does seem to be kind of a, do- a double standard. Yeah. As opposed now, with regard to the Biden response, I think you're right. I think this was a good this was a good week for Democrats because first of all, the the outcome of the of the uh, election in in Wisconsin for the Supreme Court was was good for Democrats, mm. and it shows the long term consequences of the Dobbs decision. Seem to be uh, it seems to be. <laughs> Terrible for people who believe in reproductive rights, but good for Democrats electorally is, is, is how that's been playing out. But more importantly for Biden, if we're talking about Trump and crime, if those are the headlines, I think that works well for, for Biden. Mm. Um, 
the time New York Times had a strange story this week where they were saying basically, where's Biden? Trump steals the spotlight. And I thought this was not a good week for Donald Trump, no. which by definition is a good week for Joe Biden. Right, right. It's it seems to me. But but anyway, what you want to yeah, respond? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that that, that is going to be fascinating, and and there's going to be more stories about Eugene Debs in the in the news yes. in the future, is you know if this assuming this case comes to trial, that trial is going to happen right in the midst of the campaign. Yeah, uh, they're talking about nine months. I don't know why it's going to take so long, but they're talking about at the end. But, but the there's end going to be year. sort of pre-trial motions right. and stuff. But the actual you know meat of it will be. Uh, you know, in January, it looks like. And right, so the, in time for the Iowa caucuses. Exactly, you know, and so what happens if the day of a Republican debate, Trump has to go into court in either this case or in Georgia or in D.C. or, or some other thing? Um, how does that how does that play out? And, and, and we haven't um, been in this territory before, so it's going to create some... Um, can you explain to listeners why Eugene, Eugene oh, Debs sure. is significant? Oh, sure. Eugene Debs uh, uh, was a socialist. He ran for president, I don't want to say four or five times. And the last time he ran for president was in 1920 while he was in prison um, uh, for violating, I believe, the Sedition Act of 1917. He had come out against the, the draft in the First World War, and he uh, was in prison for that when he was running for president. Obviously, he didn't win any of the times, and he was never a really serious contender for the presidency. Uh, you know, he did got 5% of the vote a few times, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there will be uh, thought pieces comparing Trump to, to Eugene Debs, which, is, which I think both men will, would be... A, horrified by uh, on profound levels. The um, Eugene V. Debs House Museum had a very amusing tweet on Wednesday to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of, you know, please, please, please be kind to us. It's a very difficult time. time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, Eugene Debs went to prison for, for, for very principled reasons. Yes. Um, and he went to jail on multiple occasions, but uh, well, and arguably, what well, I mean, that's a good example of a politician who was being where the the law was used against him to persecute him for his views. To be sure, um, because Debs was often jailed for uh, well, as you say, he took principled stance, but also simply because of his politics, yeah, because right. he was a socialist. socialist. And yes, to be sure. Um, so so yes, they're, they're very different kinds of men. Hard to imagine two more dissimilar men, in fact, than than than. than Trump and Eugene. So, David. Yes. Uh, there may be further indictments coming down the line with these other uh, cases, which and the evidence we've seen is, seems to be pretty compelling. We'll have to see how it plays out. We know there are these 34 charges in New York. It's clear to anyone listening to this that we are not lawyers. Um, how likely is it that Trump is convicted, do you think, for, of some, for something? That would truly be unprecedented. Yeah, it, it, I think it, it, it depends partially on, on I guess, who's on the jury. He wants uh, the, the trial to be relocated to, to, to Staten, Staten Island because he did very well yeah. in Staten Island, relatively speaking, whereas in Manhattan he's not, not so popular. Um, uh, you know, and, and if he is convicted, you know, what the punishment is, right? You can, you know, these are... Uh, Felonies, but they're 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 not they're low level felonies, relatively speaking. It's a good question how you impanel a jury. Joking aside yeah, yeah. about Staten Island versus Manhattan, you know, if, how do you get a jury, jury of people who have no opinion about Donald Trump? 
Yeah, that, that that's going to be a, a challenge. Uh, honestly, I mean, I, I I think that's a genuine question. Yeah. Um, well, they don't have to have no opinion. No, they have, right. have to have they be have able to. to say they're going to be impartial. Right. I now understand. that that I, uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. Um, right. We <laughs> we will see listeners. We will we will cover the the Trump trials uh, as they unfold in the. In the so, David, what's your last drop? Right, then? right. So, I want to. Um, I'm very excited about an upcoming lecture we have uh, at the university. This is the 2023 lecture on the history of slavery, a, a lecture we have every year. But this year, uh, we have Professor Brenda Stevenson, who is giving a lecture entitled "Slavery, Family, and Resistance," on April uh, 25th at five o'clock, and you can get tickets uh, through Eventbrite. It's all free, um, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, uh, Brendan Stevenson is the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History uh, at Oxford. She is the first person to hold that chair. I think before that she was at UCLA, uh, and she's really one of our foremost historians of slavery. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to this lecture, which is uh, going to be in the Meadows Lecture Theater. So Excellent. if you are in town and available to come, please come and uh, join us for the lecture on April 25th. So, speaking of lectures... Okay, it's your last drop. is my last drop. Uh, I mentioned the final lecture, which was delivered by Julia Late um, of Birkbeck College um, back on March 30th, and I know several people, uh, several of our listeners attended, which was great. If you missed it... Um, you missed I, out, but... But we will share the link because we recorded the lecture and it will be available hopefully later today. Uh, and I and I can uh, give it to you to sh- put in the show notes as well the, the the video of it because it was a it was a very fine lecture. So. It, it was an extraordinary lecture. You know, I had honestly not thought very much at all about Newfoundland ever before in my entire life, and and and, and it made, she made me care about it and think it was interesting. And she had some great stories and was able to connect it with her personal life and the history of imperialism and Native America. It was great. I had a great chat with Julia before and after the lecture, uh, but you know, informally before and then at the dinner after the lecture. And um, one of the things points she makes is that uh, very few Canadians talk about Newfoundland, yeah. <laughs> let alone. So this is a, your 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 response was was, was typical, uh, and and she had she was very insightful and very entertaining and a very kind of engaging storyteller. Yeah, story yeah. So great. great. So anyway, till next week, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.